Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and bizarre rulers. On this week's episode, we're looking at the reign of one of Egypt's most controversial pharaohs, Akhenaten. Akhenaten was the 10th pharaoh of the 18th dynasty of ancient Egypt, ruling from 1351 to 1334 BCE. We've actually covered a ruler of the 18th dynasty way back towards the beginning of the show with the episode over Hatshepsut, the woman who ended up leading Egypt in place of her son and brought the land into a period of relative prosperity. Well, Akhenaten will take that era of prosperity and kinda screw around with it. There's many things Akhenaten can claim to be known for, but the most obvious claim to fame he has is the worship of the god Aten, an ancient Egyptian god of the sun, and his attempts to do away with the worship of all other deities in order to bolster the cult of his preferred god. There was a lot of background political stuff that was going on that we'll get into, but this massive shift in the ancient Egyptian religion would have huge effects on Egypt as a whole going forward. After all, in Egypt at this time, the pharaoh was also essentially the most important priest in the kingdom. But there's been a historical two-sided argument over the legacy of Akhenaten, because after all his reign was one of the first, if not the actual first, large-scale demonstrations of a state-led monotheistic religion. But also, it would try to do away with the Egyptian polytheism that had centuries of history behind it that people today continue to worship and find fascinating. On top of all this, he was still the leader of a nation that had to deal with its neighbors, and, well, that was a whole other thing. Akhenaten's reign has a lot going on for it, but it was also another period of Egypt that, like the reign of Hatshepsut, we really didn't know all that much about until relatively recently in the grand scheme of history. Obviously, there's a story behind that too. So, without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to ancient Egypt in the mid-14th century BCE in Praise the Sun, and only the Sun. <laughs> In the background history lesson this time around, we're going to be taking a look at the history of Egyptian polytheism. Let's get the ball rolling with a look at the religion of ancient Egypt. Like many ancient cultures, the Egyptians practiced a version of polytheism. They had many gods, with either hundreds or potentially thousands to worship. Depending on the area you lived in or the specific period of time, certain gods and goddesses maintained varying levels of powers and distinction. For instance, some of the most famous deities in ancient Egypt were the nine deities of the Ennead, which included the likes of Osiris, Isis, and Set, who were actually just important in the religious center of Heliopolis. This is also why there's a lot of overlap between the dominions of gods and goddesses. For instance, Ra, Nut, Hathor, Amun, Sekhmet, and the Aten were all considered deities with dominion over the sun. Also, while the depiction of Egyptian gods with the heads of animals or animal-like features was common from an artistic standpoint, the ancient Egyptians didn't actually believe that Anubis had the head of a jackal or Ra had the head of an eagle. The gods were inscrutable beings, unimaginable in true form, that needed to be given distinct artistic versions that represented traits they possessed. 
Religion was something everyone in Egypt practiced, from the slaves to the pharaoh. Also, it was thought to be more personal than more modern forms of organized religion. Priests and priestesses didn't really hold organized prayer services. Instead, it was their duty to appease whatever deity their temple was devoted to, meaning offering up prayers and sacrifices. People could pray to whatever god they chose in their own homes. There were larger festivals and holy days that revolved around the gods that entire communities would be involved in. Unfortunately, otherwise, to what extent personal religious life was like back in the day was hard for us in the modern day to understand due to the fact that most art and writings available today from ancient Egyptian are about the upper class. Some more major foundations of the ancient Egyptian religion are the concepts of Mat, Heka, and the afterlife. Mat is both a goddess as well as a universal concept of truth and harmony. Mat is an ancient concept, with inscriptions mentioning it as the natural state of the world being found dating almost as far back as 2400 BCE. Mat the goddess was in charge of keeping the world in order against the forces of Isfet, injustice, chaos, and violence. It was the pharaoh's duty to uphold Mat, and the goddess Mat soon became intrinsically linked with kinghood due to this. Heka is the Egyptian concept of magic. Like Mat, Heka was also a god. Heka as a concept was believed to be a natural force in the world. It was employed by the world itself in the act of creation, as a tool by the gods to exert their divine wills, and it could be used by humans for rituals. Ancient Egyptians also believed in an afterlife. Though the body would die, the soul would move on to the next world. Also, the soul would bring along anything that person had that was buried with them. That's why the tombs of pharaohs were filled with valuable objects and sometimes servants who offered their own lives. This also meant that it was very important to preserve as much of the body as possible, hence mummification. If you could keep the body whole, that meant the person was able to have a complete body in the afterlife. It's why there was a story of the god Set killing Osiris and chopping his body into a bunch of pieces. Osiris's wife, Isis, had to gather the pieces in order to ensure her husband would be able to be whole again in the afterlife. But what happens when all of that is forced to change? Like I said, different locations and time periods saw the rise in prominence of different deities. When our story begins, the cult of Amun, a god of creation and king of all deities, was at the height of its power. Of course, the other gods also had their places. What happens when all of that is thrown to the side in order to put a new god above all others? The second son of Pharaoh Amenhotep III and his principal wife Tia was born as Amenhotep, a name meaning Amun is satisfied. Yes, the pharaoh we will be following was not born as Akhenaten. He would change his name later on, but we'll get to that later. He originally had an older brother named Tutmosa, probably named for his grandfather and the earlier pharaohs of the 18th dynasty. Sometime before the death of Amenhotep III, Tutmosa passed away, leaving the younger Amenhotep as the heir to the throne of king. 
Apparently, there's been a long-running disagreement as to whether both Amenhotep's ruled together at some point before Amenhotep IV, aka Akhenaten, fully took the throne as the sole king of Egypt. There is possible evidence in the tomb of a royal vizier in Luxor that places the names of Amenhotep III and Amenhotep IV at the same level, though it's possible that this advisor served under both kings during separate reigns. At this point in time, the future Akhenaten was not yet under the intense zealotry of the Aten he would later go on to profess. In fact, it's entirely possible that Amenhotep IV did not begin to worship the Aten until a couple years into his rule as pharaoh. He became pharaoh sometime around 1352 BCE after the death of his father, again possibly having acted as co-ruler for anywhere up to several years before this point. Also, there's a vast age range for Amenhotep at the time of his coronation as the 10th pharaoh of his dynasty, with him being anywhere from as young as 10 years old to as old as 23, though that is still pretty young. The surviving archaeological findings from the early days of his reign suggest that Amenhotep IV led a fairly normal reign. Art shows him worshipping multiple gods. He continued building projects to the god Ra that his father had started. During this time, he would also marry his great royal wife, actual title by the way, Queen Nefertiti. The only sign of things to come was Amenhotep IV's decree to the construction of a palace of worship to the Aten in Karnak. Karnak was a complex of temples located near modern-day Luxor, which back in Akhenaten's time would have been near the capital city of Thebes. The pharaoh's construction plan would come to be known as Per Aten, the House of Aten. The Per Aten is actually several temples to the solar deity. The Per Aten was possibly started up during the reign of Amenhotep III, but it was finished and in use by the reign of Amenhotep IV. An interesting fact about the Per Aten is that the temples were built relatively quickly using limestone blocks that allowed the structures to also be taken down fairly easily which they very much would be soon enough, as almost nothing of the Per Aten remains in our modern day. The final note of interest for Amenhotep IV's early reign was that he organized a Sed festival. The Sed festival, named after an Egyptian deity more commonly known as Wepawet, was held in order to ensure the continued health and reign of the pharaoh. This festival almost always was first held when the pharaoh turned 30 and was held again once every few years afterwards to continue the blessings towards the king of Egypt. Well, the future Akhenaten was not yet 30 during this time, possibly still very much being a teenager. So why hold the said festival? There's been some debate about the reasoning behind it. First, it was possible that this said festival was held when Akhenaten's father was still alive, so it would just be another of his that Amenhotep IV was around for. Second, it could have been to show that Amenhotep IV was symbolically showing his reign as a continuation of his father's. However, there's also been a theory thrown around that Amenhotep IV held the festival as an act of cleansing and blessing himself in order to prepare his rule for what was about to come. Before we actually get into what comes next, it involves a lot of stuff with the Aten, let's completely pivot to talk about the god Amun and his cult of worship. In super ancient times, he was worshipped at the city of Khemenu, 
more commonly known by its Greek name Hermopolis. Around the 21st century BCE, Amun was made the patron god of the city of Thebes. After the Second Intermediate Period, a time during which Egypt was under divided rule lasting from about 1700 to 1550 BCE, Amun was raised to a more central status within the Egyptian pantheon. He was now the king of gods. This was made even more official by the fusion of Amun with the sun god Ra, the fused god known as Amun-Ra or Amun-Re. The cult of Amun became so prevalent with his ascended status that it was possible to find pockets of worship to the god in areas west and south of the borders of the Egyptian kingdom. When the 18th dynasty took over Egypt, they moved the capital to Thebes, therefore making Amun-Ra the god of the Egyptian capital. The 18th dynasty pharaohs worshipped Amun and often credited him with their victories. They even started naming themselves after him. Like I said, the name Amenhotep more or less translates to Amun is pleased. In the earlier days of the dynasty before Akhenaten stepped in, rulers such as Hatshepsut and her stepson Thutmose III continued to build more temples to Amun at Karnak, and the deity had now fully assumed his role as a creator god. Obviously, this gave the cult of Amun quite a bit of power. In an inscription dating to about the fourth year of Akhenaten's reign, just before things started changing, the high priest of Amun, a man possibly named Maya, was able to travel around with a contingency of about 250 soldiers. Obviously, that's quite a bit more soldiers than you would think would be necessary to escort a member of the clergy. It's believed that the cult of Amun may have even started getting a bit more involved with political power plays than was technically necessary from the religious group. Now remember, the religion and the state were one and the same in Pharaonic Egypt, but the Egyptian religion was polytheistic. Even if Amun was the most powerful god, that didn't mean his cult actually had the right to step in and talk about political law. It's perhaps this reason as to why Amenhotep IV decided things needed to change. He had his own god he wanted to worship, and he wasn't going to let the priests who worshipped a different god get in his way. It was finally time for the Age of the Aten to begin. During the fifth year of his rule, we suddenly start to see the pharaoh being referred to as Akhenaten, a name meaning beneficial to the Aten. However, pharaohs had multiple names that referred to the multiple purposes of their position, being a political and religious leader chosen by the gods themselves. These names were Pan-Egyptian, referring to concepts such as strength, Karnak, and the city of Thebes. Akhenaten changed all of his names to now refer to the Aten. Ironically, the only name of his that seems to be unchanged is the one that is about Ra. Guess you can't go messing around with that. Granted, both Ra and the Aten were solar deities, so Akhenaten probably thought it still fit with his new MO. And you may be wondering why I keep referring to Akhenaten's deity as THE Aten. Well, that's because the Aten technically wasn't a person, but a concept of the sun referred to as the solar disk. Aten is actually just the ancient Egyptian word for disk. A plate could technically be an Aten. The moon was the silver Aten. 
It's believed that the Aten was originally an aspect of the god Ra, another possible reason why Akhenaten kept his one name referring to Ra. However, by the time of Amenhotep III, the Aten was actually sometimes being depicted as a human man with the head of a falcon, just like Ra. There is also still a whole lot of debates over to what extent the Aten was being worshipped before Akhenaten decided the Aten would be his deity of choice. There's theories that Amenhotep III was also a big fan of the Holy Sun Disc. It's just that he never went as far as changing his name to reflect that. Well, not too long after changing his name to reflect his growing fascination with the Aten, Akhenaten decided he would move the capital of Egypt from Thebes to a brand new city he had founded. The city was called Akhetaten, meaning Horizon of the Aten. Since Akhetaten and Akhenaten are very similar sounding names, we'll call the pharaoh's new capital city by its other name, Amarna. Amarna was built about halfway between Thebes and the city of Memphis, the former capital of more ancient dynasties that still remained an important city within Egypt. According to Akhenaten, the site for Amarna was chosen because it lay unclaimed by any god, goddess, male ruler, female ruler, or any other people. Therefore, Akhenaten could fully claim the land under the rule of the Aten. However, we're not entirely sure why Akhenaten moved the capital of Egypt to Amarna. In a stele that is inscribed with the founding story of the city, the reasoning behind the move is damaged and unreadable. This has led archaeologists and historians to theorize that Akhenaten felt Thebes was no longer a safe place for him to worship the Aten. After all, Thebes was the home of Amun, and the cult of Amun had grown substantially in power. It's possible that the pharaoh and the priests of Amun had grown to hate each other and were now making it a very public matter. The move was possibly even an effort on Akhenaten's part to lessen the power of Amun. The city itself was built fairly quickly. Akhenaten ordered for its construction to begin in the fifth year of his reign. By the eighth year of his reign, the royal family had moved to Amarna. The buildings were constructed using the same limestone technique Akhenaten had requested during the building of the Per-Aten in Karnak. Once again, very easy to build up and very easy to take down. Construction was halted throughout Thebes as workers were called to continue working on Amarna. At the same time, other temples to the Aten were being built in major cities throughout Egypt. And that's when everyone else learned that the Aten wasn't just a god for the pharaoh. There were much darker implications surrounding the sun disk. It did not take much longer before Akhenaten began diverting funds towards the cult of the Aten that had been meant for the priests and upkeep of temples to the other gods. Then, artwork around the Aten slowly began shifting its appearance to show the prominence of the solar god. Before Akhenaten, the Aten was technically just a part of the artwork of Ra, represented as the sun disk hovering just above Ra's head. As I had previously noted, the Aten around the reign of Akhenaten was also sometimes depicted in human form. Well, this human form was also being clothed in the garments of the pharaoh. Pretty on the nose there. However, this wasn't the most common form the Aten would take. 
usually it was still depicted as the sun disk, but now it had a new, slightly creepy feature added on. The rays of the sun were now protruding from the disk, with each ray ending in a human hand. In hieroglyphs, the symbol for the Aten was also surrounded by a cartouche, an oval with a line underneath. This was usually only used to signify the names of the members of the royal family. So clearly, we've got a massive overhaul of Egyptian religion, culture, and even language happening all at once. In the ninth year of his reign, Akhenaten finally delivered the final blow. The Aten was the supreme god of the world, and the only god the Egyptian people were allowed to worship. In order for this to be properly spelled out, Akhenaten ordered that all the temples of Amun should be stripped of depictions of the former supreme deity. In other cases, temples had to change inscriptions to remove references to gods in the plural form. Some of Akhenaten's courtiers even decided to change their names if it contained a reference to other gods, such as Tutmosa meaning child of the god Thoth. The temples to the Aten were also built differently from others. While other temples were enclosed buildings full of mystery, the temples to the Aten had open roofs so the sun could shine freely into the place of worship. Finally, unlike the other deities who were no longer allowed to be worshipped, who had many priests that would commune with said deities, Akhenaten proclaimed that he himself was the only human being who could directly commune with the Aten. It's believed that Akhenaten even composed his own hymns to the Aten, in a tomb that would eventually be used by a later 18th century pharaoh named Ai, archaeologists found a hymn to the Aten that is traditionally attributed to Akhenaten. Here's a little bit of the hymn so you can really see what's going on in Akhenaten's mind. You are in my heart. There is no one who knows you. Only your son, Neferkepere, sole one of Re, Akhenaten, whom you have taught your ways and your might. Those on earth come from your hand as you made them. When you have dawned, they live. When you set, they die. You yourself are lifetime. One lives by you. There's clear implication there that Akhenaten sees himself as the sole priest of the Aten, and his deity controls the lives of the people of Egypt. However, there's an earlier section of the hymn that makes references to both the Levant and Nubia, meaning Akhenaten also viewed the Aten as a god for the rest of the world as well. Now, this seems very overtly harsh for the people of Egypt as it was a complete reversal for a vast majority of the population to suddenly change how they worshipped. However, let's jump back to something I mentioned earlier in the episode. When it comes to ancient Egypt, we actually don't know as much about the day-to-day -day life of the common folk of Egypt compared to what we know about the priests and nobility. In fact, because of this, it's been theorized that most people probably didn't actually change religions. They almost certainly continued worshipping their deity-slash-deities of choice within the comfort of their own homes. It was just that all public holidays and artwork could only reference the one legal deity of Akhenaten's Egypt. But this new religion, referred to as Atenism, wasn't the only change Akhenaten had thought of for his kingdom. There was still plenty more to come.
Akhenaten's reign saw Egypt enter a very interesting period of its existence, albeit a brief one at that. It was a very abrupt change in several major facets of Egypt's usual way of existence, some for the potentially worse and some just for an interesting change of pace. Let's start with the interesting change of pace. It's fairly easy to recognize the art style of the ancient Egyptians. It's people in that semi-profile stance where their head and feet face one way but their bodies face forward. Things just seem very flat and static. Well, Akhenaten, for whatever reason, decided to change things up in a major way when it came to how he, his family, and his people would be portrayed. While the semi-profile style remained, the way the people looked drastically differed. Bodies seemed more expressive with longer limbs and upturned heads, usually looking at some sort of depiction of the Aten. People are also seen interacting closely, sometimes even holding hands. But the Amarna style, as it's come to be known, also brought about a new status quo for how to depict the pharaoh and his family. For starters, the pharaoh was actually depicted with his family. In the old style, the pharaoh almost always stood alone or in a position of power. When it came to portraying Akhenaten, you could usually also see him interacting with his family, usually with Queen Nefertiti and his children, even those birthed by his other wives. A strange feature shared by all the royal family was their depictions as having oddly elongated heads. They almost look like classical depictions of Martians or like the weird crystal skull from the fourth Indiana Jones movie, which I guess was also an alien. This had sparked a possible theory that maybe Akhenaten and his family had some sort of birth defect that affected their skulls. However, Nefertiti was not closely related to Akhenaten and she was depicted that way too. Also, we think we found Akhenaten's body and his skull looks fairly normal. The Amarna style would not last very long after Akhenaten's reign. Spoiler alert for later, a lot of people didn't really like Akhenaten and wanted most things pointing towards his reign removed. That meant bye-bye to the Amarna style. But art was far from the only thing changed in Egypt. Akhenaten also took a very different turn in his reign when it came to foreign policy. We actually know a fair bit about Akhenaten's foreign policy thanks in part to what's called the Amarna Letters, a group of clay tablets that recorded correspondences between Egypt and its eastern neighbors in Canaan and Mesopotamia. The records span about 30 years, mostly centered around Akhenaten's reign. The Amarna Letters paint a confusing picture of Akhenaten's foreign policy. For the longest time, historians interpreted the letters as implying Akhenaten was a very Egypt-first ruler who did not care about the fate of his vassal states and allies in the east. His reign would see the Hittite Empire, a culture that flourished in what is modern-day central and eastern Turkey, greatly expand their powers south into the Levant, siding up almost right next door to the borders of Egypt. Several of the Amarna letters even seemingly show that Akhenaten refused to send soldiers to aid his allies and left them to face the Hittites alone. Apparently, this view is being disputed in more recent years, claiming that Akhenaten was probably a much better man when it came to his allies than historically believed. He probably did not go out to fight as much as his predecessors, if at all. The more modern interpretation of Akhenaten is that he favored diplomacy over warfare. 
However, there are also letters to the pharaoh from other kings in the general region that are all complaints that Akhenaten was not as charitable as his predecessors. Apparently, he did not give out as much gold as his father had. So like, yeah, if that's a problem for certain rulers, so be it. Unless that gold was supposed to help keep the foreign king's kingdoms afloat, then yeah, it's a problem that Akhenaten was not as charitable. Akhenaten's rule overall seemed to be a single man trying to play a very specific type of ruler. One who wasn't always good, more often angering many of his citizens and allies, but one who was certainly unique. After 17 years, about half of those years in an attempt at a forced monotheistic rule, Akhenaten passed away. It's believed that for the last few years of his life, Akhenaten co-ruled Egypt alongside potentially two different rulers, Smenkhore and Neferneferuaten. The identity of these two co-rulers and possible successors of Akhenaten are murky at best. Smenkhore is believed to have possibly been Akhenaten's brother, son, or other close male relative. We know for certain, based on records, that he was married to Akhenaten's daughter, Merit Taten. Given that the dynasties of ancient Egypt were famous for incestuous marriages, it's entirely possible that Smenkhore and Meretaten were siblings. It should also be said, though, jumping off that last sentence, that it's generally been considered that Akhenaten and Nefertiti were not siblings, and Nefertiti may not have actually been Egyptian. If Smenkhore outlived Akhenaten, he only ruled Egypt as pharaoh for less than a year. As for Neferneferuaten, the most common held belief on her identity, and we are almost 100% sure Neferneferuaten was female, is that the second co-ruler slash successor was actually Queen Nefertiti, and she just changed her name when she fully assumed the throne. There are actually also theories that Nefertiti was also Smenkhore, secretly acting as a male co-ruler before allowing herself to be presented as female after her husband passed away. And I know what you may be thinking, that would be weird that Nefertiti would then be married to Meritaten, but, I mean, let's just hope this isn't the case. There's another theory that Neferneferuaten was actually Meritaten. This theory gets thrown off when the fact of the matter is that we don't actually know when these two co-rulers slash successors were in power. Most people assume Smenkare ruled on his own first, but it's possible that Neferneferuaten ruled beforehand. And if Meritaten was Neferneferuaten, why would she step down as king of Egypt to simply be the king's wife? Could that have happened? I mean, yeah, but it's very unlikely. Anyways, these two mysterious pharaohs more or less continued the Amarna tradition of rule. It's thought that these two also recognized the fact that Akhenaten had been the personification of the Amarna period, and it could never truly last now that he was dead and buried. He was buried in Amarna, but that wouldn't actually last long. It wasn't until the successor to those two pharaohs came along that the Amarna period would truly be brought to an end, though I'll be talking more about him in a little bit. But yes, the Amarna period did come to an end, and it sure came to a crashing halt. The cult of the Aten began to lose its prestige. By the end of the 18th century, which was about 40 years after Akhenaten's death, 
the citizens of Egypt were tearing down the temples Akhenaten had ordered to be built. And as I said before, the limestone slabs used to build the temples to the Aten were designed to be built and taken apart very easily. And taken apart easily, they sure were. Along with the destruction of the temples, Amarna itself was soon ordered to be dismantled. With the city destroyed, Akhenaten's body was taken from its tomb and brought to the Valley of the Kings, where the other rulers of the 18th dynasty had been buried near Thebes. He was placed in a tomb that was otherwise undecorated, and any mention of his name was removed. Even the face of his sarcophagus was damaged. A damnatio memoriae was placed on Akhenaten's rule, as well as the rule of many of his successors. This meant that their names were struck from official listings of pharaohs. Other mentions of them in art or on temple walls were also removed. The kingdom of Egypt would soon go on to forget about the heretical rule of Akhenaten. Even after all the projects ordered by Akhenaten were destroyed, Egypt did not quite return to its pre-Amarna self. Akhenaten had done irreparable damage to the power of the pharaoh. Before him, the pharaohs had been the representative of the gods on earth, in a sense acting as living gods themselves. With Akhenaten's religious stunt, the public started taking religion into their own hands. People began to perceive the gods as beings who directly interacted with the mortal plane of existence, with no need of the pharaohs as a high priest. So, the role of pharaoh became largely just a political position. And with other gods back on the table for worship, it didn't take too long for the cult of Amun to regain its power. The Aten was pushed to the wayside as Amun was once again reinstated as the king of the gods. Throughout much of the 20th dynasty, who ruled from 1189 to 1077 BCE, the cult of Amun gained further power under the high priesthood of a man named Ramzesenacht. By the end of the 20th dynasty, the cult of Amun more or less controlled Egypt. A high priest of Amun would even go on to serve as Pharaoh Pasusenes II of the 21st dynasty. But throughout most of human history between his death and now, Akhenaten was lost to history, at least for the most part. It wouldn't be until the 1700s CE when the ruins of the city of Amarna were discovered. And even then, it wasn't until the latter half of the 1800s when we really started understanding more of the archaeological excavations, including learning about the pharaoh who had ordered the city to be built. And to this day, Akhenaten's legacy is a tricky one. In the end, it kinda just depends on your views about monotheistic religions and the religion of ancient Egypt. Like, was it bad that Akhenaten said, hey, you can no longer worship the gods of your ancestors, worship this one? Yes, it was. However, it was proof that monotheism could work on a larger scale. Atenism predates Zoroastrianism and Judaism by at least a few centuries, with Zoroastrianism coming into the picture in the mid-first millennium BCE, and Judaism becoming more monotheistic from its henotheistic roots about the same time. Then again, it's hard to say how hardline monotheistic Atenism really was. As I said before, did everyone actually obey the tenets of Atenism? Possibly not. Did Akhenaten really deny the existence of other gods, or did he just stop the worship of them? Because those two ideas are actually very different. 
Either way, Atenism was a huge step forward in the realm of monotheism. Some historians actually believe that the prayers believed to be written by Akhenaten to the Aten would actually go on to inspire prayers in both Zoroastrianism and Judaism, especially some found in the Book of Psalms. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next episode, we're going to cover a topic that I hinted at this episode but skipped over. We know Atenism would die out soon after Akhenaten's reign, but who was the pharaoh during that time? Surprisingly, that's probably the least known fact about this famous ruler as we look at the life, and rebirth through archaeology, of a pharaoh generally presumed to be Akhenaten's son, Tutankhamun, aka King Tut. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, whoa, whoa.